The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and thank you so much for joining me today. As we begin our discussion, if you have any comments uh, regarding the show, you can always email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. We come live of uh, We come to you live from Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York every week, and my goal of doing this show is to highlight the amazing work of crisis centers across the country. Many crisis centers provide critical, life-saving work each day, 24 hours a day. In addition to direct services to those in need, crisis centers are also leaders in collaboration, helping various disciplines coordinate their responses to those impacted by issues like mental illness, suicide, and rape. Over the past few shows, I've shared examples of this with our crisis intervention team training that we talked about with law enforcement a few shows ago, and also over the last couple weeks, responding to individuals with rape and sexual assault. Today's show provides another example of this collaboration within our community helping provide a comprehensive level of care for those in crisis. If you're interested in learning more about crisis services and our mission and how you can donate to our organization, please feel free to visit our website at www.crisisservices.org. As I shared with you over the last couple weeks, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Over the past two weeks, we've talked about immediate response after a rape or sexual assault and also efforts to increase sexual violence prevention at the local and state levels. This week, we'll be having a targeted discussion on sexual assault on college campuses and what higher education institutions are doing to respond to Title IX and its implications for sexual violence prevention on campus. Before we start our discussion, I always like to share a resource that if you um, yourself are impacted by rape or sexual assault, or you know somebody that has been, you can always reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. You can also go online to rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. And this website has information, resources, and it also helps you to connect with your local rape crisis center. And you can also chat online with a counselor. So today I'd like to introduce our guest um, who will be uh, sharing this discussion with us. I have Dr. Greg Nair and Anna Sotelo-Pierrier, who will be talking both from the private college perspective as well as a public 
university perspective. But before we start our discussion, I want to share a little bit about our guests. Dr. Nair holds a BA in history and secondary education and a master's in education from the State University of New York College at Potsdam, as well as has earned his doctorate from the University of Virginia in higher education administration. He currently serves as the vice president of student affairs at Damon College, responsible for student life experience, including management and supervision of the areas of student activities, residence life, counseling, and health services, dining services, and campus safety. That's a lot of work, Greg. <laughs> we'll be talking a little bit about your role in a minute. And I'd also like to um, introduce a little bit about Anna. Anna is the Public Health Planner and Violence Prevention Coordinator for the University at Buffalo and has developed and managed its award-winning violence prevention program for wellness education services over the past nine years. Her primary areas of focus are health promotion, cultivating student leaders, and engaging in targeted prevention education to create a safer, more welcoming environment for students to flourish. Anna has taught by standard interventions, survivor empathy, media analysis, and community development to students in the allied health field, and has presented um, in both national and local arenas. So to get our conversation started today, I was wondering, Greg, if you could provide a brief overview of Title IX as it relates to campus sexual violence. Sure. You know, most of the time when people hear Title IX, they think of athletics. And Title IX has its, its origins in, in 1972, the educational amendments. And it really deals with equal protection under the law. It applies to any institution that is of giving out federal funds, and that obviously includes colleges and universities. While the original law didn't mention anything about athletics, that's what we've equated to over the last 30-some-odd years, and it's obviously had a profound impact in the ability of, of females to have a greater access to athletics, both in the high school level and post-secondary. In 2011, the Office of Civil Rights, which is under the Department of Education, sent out one of their regular Dear Colleague letters. And in that letter, they clarified that uh, the Title IX actually applies to how you handle conduct, specifically in terms of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and now it's harm that we refer to on a regular basis as dating violence. Um, so Title IX for us on a college campus really looks at how we handle those cases, how we adjudicate them, how we treat both the person who reported the incident and the person who is being accused of committing the incident. It looks at a variety of different things, not just the adjudication of it, not just the response, but, but focuses on three things, prevention, remediation, and then ultimately adjudication of it. The goal is for the institution to be able to make sure the campus community understands what their rights are, understands what is expected of them, and is proactive, but also that there is a system in place to be able to respond effectively, efficiently, and responsibly as quickly as you can. Um, the other piece is to ensure that colleges and universities have someone who is designated as a Title IX coordinator who can oversee all of those components from a variety of different ways, not only the student conduct piece, the athletics piece, the academic piece, and, and pull that all together. It's designed to be a checks and balance. Okay, okay. So how does an institution reconcile the seeming, sometimes the confusion between different laws that mandate um, in a way that 
works for the students as well as the institution. Yeah, that is a that is a challenge, and I think if you talk to to most colleagues in, in my position, they would say that is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of law is very well intentioned um, and and some good uh, pieces behind it, but just putting laws at a problem isn't necessarily the way to solve it. We, we sometimes have to take a holistic look at it. Our, our friends at SUNY General Counsel, I think, do a wonderful job at being able to try and unpack this. <laughs> and um, I, I think you hear terms like the Cleary Act and, and what does that entail? And you hear Title IX, and then you hear about the Violence Against Women Act, VAWA, and the campus C portion of the sexual assault violence education portion that President Obama signed in March of 2013. And you look at all those different pieces and, and where they all come together. Cleary Act has to do with uh, reporting of crimes campuses and how you respond to that and how you alert the campus community. Mm-hmm. Title IX deals with equal protection under the law in a variety of different areas we talked about. And the Violence Against Women Act deals with sexual violence, dating violence, and those, those kind of things. They all intersect around this term of dating violence. And that that's the challenge, to make sure that the institution is not only compliant with the letter of the law, but it's more about the spirit of the law. And I think that's for us and for me in my position, not only at Damon College, but I also had the privilege of serving in our Western New York consortium on our task force on compliance and and education. And one of our foci is, is truly to make sure people understand that if you're doing what makes sense for the student, if you are educating them appropriately, if you have a system in place, if you are publicizing that system, if it is fair, if there are appeal processes in place, if what you are doing for the person who comes forward is the same thing you're doing for the person who reported it, then you're going to be okay. Right. That's that's important. Okay. It's the spirit of the law. I think more times than not, as colleges and universities struggle with this, the way in which you respond, the way in which you talk to the person who came forward, the way in which you investigate it, and provide resources and support goes a long way to that person feeling validated, feeling heard, and feeling like the institution has responded accordingly. Right, absolutely. I mean, it's so critical, especially in situations of rape, domestic violence, or any really stressor or crisis that a, that a student's going through, how people are responding to them is, is really, really important and how they feel um, supported by their by their campus. Agreed. And I would also add to that, you know, one of the things that I often say, as um, I do a lot with crisis management as well, is that the time to exchange business cards is not during a crisis. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that mm-hmm. is that the relationships that you build in, pro, in being proactive, whether it's on your campus or off, outside your campus, with local agencies like Crisis Services mm-hmm. in Buffalo for us, like the local police department, like local colleges and universities, makes a big difference in being able to do exactly what you are asking in pulling together all these different pieces. We have on our campus a, a sexual assault, violence prevention and education task force. Now, that does not just look at sexual assault violence prevention. It looks at alcohol, drug use. It looks at other types of mental health and wellness issues. I don't think, in my opinion, there's a way that you can look at one without looking at the other. There is a correlation relationship. And I also don't believe that you can just have the people in my area, student affairs, looking at programming. Right. It's across campus. It's a cross-community issue. Our group is made up of faculty, staff, students, athletics, 
It is made up of crisis services. Um, it is made up of a variety of different people that enable us to be able to respond effectively and in a way that is proactive and on top of the the seeming the seemingly endless loss. Right. The collaboration is definitely key for for helping to respond to this type of type of need for your students. What would you say to critics who say that colleges and universities don't know how to handle these matters effectively? Well, I would say in some regards they have a point, but I would also say that that's a a simplistic vision of it. And, and let me clarify by what I mean by that. A college or university is not equipped to do a forensics investigation. Mm -hmm. They're not equipped to handle a rape kit, nor should they be doing that. They're not equipped to um, detain and arrest somebody. There are things beyond their control that they shouldn't be doing. Conduct systems on our campuses, disciplinary systems, were set up as just that, discipline systems. Mm -hmm. um, and they are built on an educational model. They weren't built on a criminal Right, that's a really good point. Model. So I think to that extent, there is a very valid point to it. However, what I would also say is that colleges and universities are in a position that the law may not always be in a position of. The law, if, if uh, let's say an instance where somebody is sexually assaulted and that needs to get investigated and that's going to go to trial, well, before a district attorney is going to prosecute, they have to have a lot of evidence. They have to think that they're going to be able to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, the standard that we use on college campuses is the same standard civil trials use, which is a preponderance of evidence, meaning it is it more or less likely. Mm -hmm. And in that instance, a college can actually respond a little bit more effectively. Um, even if it cannot be completely proven of what happened, a college can put in place things that will help we can put in place orders of no contact and enforce them. We can ban people from buildings and enforce them. We can put a lot of things in place to help the person out, to deal with the situation, and be able to help move it forward. Absolutely. So um, as we, we have a few minutes till we head to our first break, um, Anna, can you just jump in a little bit and talk a little bit about how the role with partnering of outside agencies like, like Crisis Services is with you at University of Buffalo um, and how that helps um, with the work that you do? Absolutely. I think Greg really kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when he said that we have to have these kind of pre-existing relationships before we get to the point where there's actually a crisis, before we get to the point where we actually need to respond to something. When it comes to actually doing good prevention work on our campus and having a good response in place for our students, we can't look at it piecemeal mm -hmm. because the, the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of different needs that that student's going to have if they're going to be able to successfully recover and stay with your institution. We want to be able to make sure that we're looking at things systematically so that any step along the way, regardless of where a student might show up, because again, they could first approach a faculty member, they could first approach an academic advisor um, or a medical staff. Um, so we want to make sure that our system is such that we can actually respond in a way that's appropriate and helpful and make sure they're getting connected to these other parts of the system. Um, one of the things that is always been a benefit to us is our relationship with crisis services because um, if you want to think about somebody who might really be there all the way through the process with our students, right. crisis services is there from the first moment they show up in the hospital. Um, and those relationships that they have with their case managers, um, those are very important to their ability to um, really continue through the process and actually come to a successful resolution. Mm -hmm. um, it's also important for us to be able to have these relationships with police and mm -hmm. the folks that are responding at the hospitals because 
for us to um, be able to have confidence in each other and know that um, should there be common issues, should there be um, a place where the system isn't operating properly, that that's something we can come back to as an overall community and make sure that we're addressing so that we don't have um, issues recur. Absolutely. And we'll be diving in the next couple segments specifically to your individual campuses and the relationships that you're building. But it really one of the things that we take away with a lot of the discussions we've had over the last couple of weeks when we've been highlighting our sexual violence efforts is about collaboration and all the disciplines that really have a key role in helping that victim become a survivor through that process. So uh, we, we have a lot to dive into. Um, so uh, for those that are listening, if you do need to talk to a counselor um, around an issue of rape or sexual assault, you can reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Um, I have with me today Dr. Greg Nair and Anna Sotella perrier uh, who are both representatives from uh, campuses here in Buffalo, New York, and we're talking about the response to sexual violence on campus. So uh, for the next discussion, we're going to highlight um, sexual violence prevention efforts on a large public university. And so Anna is a representative of the University at Buffalo uh, here in Buffalo, New York. So Anna, can you just give our listeners a little bit of insight into the demographics and the size of the University of Buffalo? 
Absolutely. So our institution is one of 64 SUNY campuses across New York State, and we are one of the largest um, institutions. So our student population is about 30,000, um, with about 20,000 of that being undergraduate students and about 10,000 being graduate students. Um, also of note, we have a pretty large international student population within our institution. Um, so that really adds to um, kind of the context of, of the students we're working with. Great, right. Well, that must be some interesting pieces, too, to have the diversity that you have on your campus. So when did the University of Buffalo begin to discuss sexual violence prevention? Um, back in 2006 was when we really started thinking about how we could be taking a more um, kind of applied approach to um, working on this as a community. And so back in 2006, we started a needs assessment um, where we reached out to a lot of the different partners on campus that we could identify as being um, having a role of any sort relating to sexual violence, whether it's in a prevention or response, or even just a person that a student might turn to for mm -hmm. assistance. Um, we also reached out to crisis services at that point um, and our university police force. Um, and as part of that survey, we asked them to identify um, other folks that they thought might need to be at the table, other people that they thought might be doing something to assist our students. Um, when we reached out to all of these different people, we asked them about what they're currently doing and what other services they're aware of at our institution, just to get an idea of who was working with who um, and how many of us were really kind of fighting a lone battle, trying mm -hmm. to figure out what we could do from our own small position to be able to help with this issue. Um, that led us to be able to really bring together different campus partners in a new way to try and think about how we could work together to do work that was more meaningful and to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we have an understanding of what our system is, that we can be transparent about that with our students, and that the work that we're doing um, is consistent, that we, we are, we're giving the same messages, we're right. providing access to the same resources so that we can really best serve our students. Great. Now, what steps did you take in implementing what you learned from that needs assessment? So it sounds like you got a lot of great feedback and information that really helped you do some planning around that. So what were some of the steps you took? Well, one of the, the early pieces was to bring together um, the different partners that, that needed to be at the table into a violence prevention team. Um, so we'd had in place on our campus for a while something called the Personal Safety Committee, which is pretty standard across the SUNY system. Um, and that was a, a committee that really looked at general safety needs, um, anything from cracks in the sidewalk to lighting concerns. Um, but really this... Um, showed a need that needed to be more of a of a focus than being embedded within that committee could really allow for. Um, so we brought together partners from across our institution and in our community um, so that we could work on these issues together. One of the very first pieces we did was try to really map out our system and understand what is the flow and what are the resources that we want to make sure every single student has access to. Um, once we were able to bring together those resources and really start to understand the roles of the different partners at the table, we were able to develop documents so that we could really um, share information in a way that was consistent mm -hmm. and people would be able to see what the steps are um, and what the options are coming forward so that it's, it's less of guesswork. It's less unknown when right. people are trying to reach out for help. And you all have the same game plan that you're working from when you're responding to a situation that is presented by a student. So that's really, really critical. What role do students play in your prevention efforts? <laughs> I know they play a lot. <laughs> many, many, many roles. Um, our students are, are involved in so many different ways. Um, 
We have an uh, interdisciplinary team of student leaders that are trained to be able to deliver these programs. We have two nationally recognized peer education groups, um, one focusing on cultivating um, male leadership around this issue. It's our UB men's group and another that focuses on um, giving survivors a place to come forward and work with allies towards advocacy and activism um, so that they really have a place of, of support. Um, beyond that, we have a very active student association um, that's been incredibly helpful. Their leadership has really supported all of the work that we do on our campus. Um, we worked with them to negotiate plans to be able to train the, the top four officers in every single student club and organization on our campus so that they not only know what to do should someone in their organization have an experience with sexual violence, how to support them and get them access to the system. Um, they also have been trained in bystander intervention training so that they can help to diffuse problematic situations before they ever get to the level of someone being harmed. Um, we also have a student advisory board which we created to work in partnership with our violence prevention team so that our students um, from a variety of different disciplines can come together and share their concerns directly with the folks that are making the policy on our campus. So we have representatives from our School of Social Work, from our law school, um, from undergraduate and graduate level student clubs and organizations, um, and also from our student government who can all um, provide information to us on what's critical and important for our students, but also act as a sounding board for us as we're developing outreach materials or strategies so that we have our students' input to know what would be effective. Right, and what's going what's gonna to make sense to them as they take on this information and, and also for themselves, or but to help their, their fellow students. So, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, community partners in the first segment a bit, but is there, you know, anything else you want to expand on with the role uh, that community partners play in your prevention efforts? We get to work pretty closely with um, a lot of different community partners um, and many different levels of the organization here at Crisis Services. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of several different instances where we're responding to a student's need where that kind of direct collaboration has really been a huge asset to us. Um, so being able to um, reach out to someone um, like Holly in the SANE program and to be able to ask questions about the hospital experience. If a student has a, a specific concern that comes up that can be incredibly unique to that one individual, um, to be able to have somebody we can reach out to to get more information and answer their questions, um, to have folks that we know we can trust. Um, to look after our students when they're right. off campus. Being able to, to make that referral out into the community is, is a huge piece that I think all colleges really take very seriously that, that, that trust that's placed in us when a student comes to our institution. Um, we really want to look after them and make sure that they're, they're treated in a way that is, is respectful and caring, and, and we know that we have that with our partners. Um, another piece for us is that ability to provide access to our campus and our system so that if a student comes in from outside, so they come in from maybe going to the hospital first or getting connected with an advocate or the DA's office separate from our institution, that we can help to support that relationship, make things as easy as possible for the students, whether it's just providing a place on campus for them to meet with their advocate or if it's providing some sort of an accommodation to make sure that um, they're not under undue strain financially right. or mm -hmm. in terms of feeling like they have a safe place to live. Um, we want to be able to support them whether or not they're going through our campus judicial processes. Right. And I think the relationship with crisis centers and local communities, so for other college representatives who may be listening to the show, really, if you don't have a partnership with your local crisis center, it really is a great relationship because it can be that sounding board like you talked about, but also for the students to know that 
there's another resource, but also to share what other resources you may not be aware of, too, because a lot of times we're dealing with all different types of crisis. So um, it is really a great relationship that we've been able to build with UB and, and Damon um, uh, through our various efforts. So um, have you noticed any trends or learn new information um, as you've been working on this effort? So is there anything specific that's popped up that you were was unexpected or just a trend that you're seeing in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've been doing base level assessments since 2007 when we were first launching our our kind of consorted effort Um, and we were able to kind of follow that up with intentional measurements every three years following the National College Health Assessment which allows us to really look at um, how things are happening at the University of Buffalo and compare it against a national sample and also national targets of where the country needs to move to by 2020. Um, When we look at those pieces it's it's been incredibly encouraging because when you see an issue like sexual violence, where we've had rates of like one in four college-aged women experiencing sexual assault that have been kind of stagnant for a really long time in our communities, it's helpful to be able to look at a, a larger sample and see where our community is specifically making progress. Right. right. Um, it also has helped us with making kind of meaning of what we see. So we might see... Um, for example, we saw an increase in the number of students that are reporting to both our judicial and to our police in recent years. And without the context of this data where we're having these anonymous responses telling us what experience levels our students are having with sexual violence, we would have not been able to find out that we were having um, rates of sexual violence that are either maintaining steady or decreasing at the same time that we're seeing reporting increase. Right. And so that's a beautiful thing because that tells us the story of students having more faith in our system and having the the confidence in our system that we're going to be able to respond to them in a way that is helpful to their lives. Um, and that's that's a beautiful piece. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing with when you look at the numbers and statistics is, you know, we talk about um, when numbers increase, we see that as a positive because that means people are coming forward because this is such an issue that's so underreported to Absolutely. begin with. So um, it's definitely an area that, um, you know, we, we look at, I think, a little differently than maybe the larger society would um, when it comes to looking at statistics around rape and sexual assault. Um, what are some success stories within your sexual violence prevention implementation that you've had at the University of Buffalo? Honestly, it's been an interesting piece, um, getting to see how things happen at different levels. So like on the large scale, it's been great for us to see um, rates of student experiences of sexual violence on a downward trend. Um, it's been really beautiful for us to see that the rates of students who have received information from us around sexual assault or relationship violence prevention have really just kind of skyrocketed. Um, We're looking back in 2007, we had rates in like the 30s and 40s, and now we're looking at rates in the high 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a a beautiful thing for us to see that we're we're doing better at communicating with our students. Um, But then the individual stories still have so much meaning to us, knowing um, that we've been able to help individual students persevere um, at our institutions, that their ability to stay in our programs has gone up, that they've felt supported on their campus, or that they've felt that um, really they could get through this with, right. with the help that they had available. So, And I think that's, you know, I was thinking about, I have my stepson's a freshman in college, so th- these conversations are so intimate to me right now with what he's, you know, as he's embarking on his college career. But you think about for a student, um, when that support isn't there, their success um, of dealing with the trauma is mm-hmm. is not 
good, but also their success of continuing with their college career could be impacted. So that support is so important because it helps them to be successful in their recovery from the trauma, but also the future that they are embarking on in the education they're receiving. So uh, your point is well taken of, of you mentioned the success in their in their in their studies is really a, an outcome as well when they're provided a very supportive environment to report um, and get that that guidance. So um, what do you see as some steps uh, for the University of Buffalo and their prevention plan? Really, we're looking at um, how to kind of continue the work that we've been doing. Um, we know that the co-curricular integration is a huge piece for us. Um, to be effective in the prevention work, we really need to be offering work that is ongoing and multimodal, that's um, sequenced, that's mm-hmm. intentional in that way. Mm-hmm. And so when we when we look at the partnerships that we have with the academic side of the house and how we can kind of work across, um, that's really a huge area of potential. Um, we've already seen some of our academic houses um, taking on syllabus statements, talking about sexual oh, violence. Um, so, and when you think about that, that's, that's helping on a number of levels. It's letting the students know that the information um, is something they have access to, that accommodations are available from their institution, but it also is letting the faculty know as well. And it's something that they'll be seeing on a, on a regular basis every single semester mm-hmm. when they're coming back through it. It reminds people of that connection that we have. Um, we also know that when we, we work together in these ways, um, the prevention piece really helps us. So I think we've really gotten to a point where we've realized that when we're looking at, uh, at meeting these mandates, checking the boxes mm-hmm. isn't really going to get us to a place where we're doing good prevention. But when we're doing good prevention work, consequently, we will be checking the bonds because for all of these mandates. And so when we're, we're working as part of an, an, a cohesive plan, when right. we're really looking at things in a way that they build off of each other, in a way that makes sense to the individuals um, who are involved in the processes, like that, that's how we actually make meaning from this work. That's how we actually can, can really make the difference. Absolutely. I'm just curious, you know, you're, you're bringing all of these different disciplines within your own campus community together around sexual violence prevention. Are you seeing that those relationships that were built as a result of this focus kind of playing out maybe in other areas on the campus to build better campus response in general? Is that something you see? I think so, because again, um, I think Greg spoke to it earlier. These issues are very much interrelated with a lot of other areas. So we know that when students have confidence in our institutions, that that, that doesn't, doesn't go by one issue or by one office. Every staff and faculty person at the University at Buffalo is UB, right? is that experience for these right. students. And so how each of us responds either increases or decreases the student's confidence in reaching out to us for any other service that they might need. And issues like sexual violence are so interrelated with so many different areas. Um, we speak with our eating disorders treatment team because we see so many of um, these kind of co-occurring behaviors. And then we know that um, working with our counseling center around what sorts of supports they can have. And then recently we were talking about applying that into our bystander intervention training so that we're looking at using our crisis hours in different ways so that a student who is in a crisis of kind of conscience of how do I move forward in supporting this person around a bystander intervention, how can I intervene on behalf of this individual, can now consult with a counselor and get more feedback. So it's really a matter of making all of these different connections where you might not at a surface level see them that enable us to do a higher quality of work. 
Absolutely. And I know uh, last week we mentioned the Walk a Mile in Her Shoes event that we have coming up here in Buffalo, New York, but it is an, inter- an international event. And, and I know UB has been a big supporter of that um, and helping us with events like that. So there's so many different ways that we can collaborate to bring attention and awareness, but also strengthen the relationship between us as partners um, to make sure that students are supported in, in every way we possibly can as a community. Um, you know, the campus is a community in and of itself but as part of a larger community as well. So um, just a reminder that if you need to speak to somebody because you have been either raped or sexually assaulted, you can reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. We have a lot to continue to talk about here today, so please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I'm so glad you were able to tune in with us today. Uh, For this last segment of the show, we have uh, Dr. Greg Nair, who's from Damon College here in Buffalo, New York, and we've been talking about sexual violence prevention on campus throughout the show. And Greg comes from a small private college here in Buffalo, New York, um, so he's going to speak to his perspective around the sexual violence prevention efforts. So, Greg, can you just introduce to our listeners a little bit about Damon College and the size and the demographics? Sure. Well, we're 
we're a little bit smaller than the University of Buffalo. <laughs> we have about 2,700 students. Um, we are a, a small private college, a um, lot, very significant programs in the sciences and physician's assistants, uh, physical training, nursing, uh, and, but we also have traditional liberal arts programs as well. We are uh, NCAA, Division II uh, institution, and that's fairly new for us. We've had athletics for a while, but we're the only Division II institution in Western New York. Um, and we are 70% female and 30% male. So that is also another interesting demographic uh, for us. Well, so when did Damon begin to discuss the sexual violence prevention efforts? So I had the privilege of joining uh, Damon's staff back in a uh, little less than two years ago. It's coming up on the two-year anniversary <laughs> Happy <now>. anniversary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, when I got there, I wanted to take a holistic look, at, as most people will when they start an institu- at another place, and try and figure out what's working, what isn't working. Uh, and I was a little concerned about some of the efforts we had. Now, I think the institution was addressing things, but uh, like Anna was talking about, we really wanted to make sure that we had a holistic approach to that. So I would say at least two years ago, we really ramped up our efforts and, and took a pulled a group together to start looking at what we were doing for prevention and education. Again, not just about sexual assault violence, but alcohol, drugs, health and wellness. I'm I'm a firm believer uh, that we have to be looking holistically at health and wellness education on our campus, and and sexual assault violence is one significant piece of that. So uh, it was a couple of years ago, and since that time, our work and our efforts have expanded significantly. We've uh, we've partnered with various agencies. Crisis services have been a big part of that. Uh, we've received recognition from the governor's office and the lieutenant governor has been on our campus several times as they've uh, uh, shared information about their enough is enough legislation and, and held up Damon as a, as a model for what a small school should be doing and looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we certainly have challenges in terms of resources like a lot of institutions do. Uh, but we have all the same issues that a large public school like UB has. So we have to figure out how can we address those issues in a way that's going to make sense for everyone, but on a different scale. Right, right. Um, so what were some of the first steps you took? I mean, so you're, you're you know, going two years now on the campus. Um, so you're kind of coming in with a different perspective, maybe sure. some new, uh, fresh eyes looking at things. So what were some of the first steps you took in developing that prevention plan on campus? Sure. So before I even stepped foot on campus, you know, I, I used my experiences at other institutions and, and looked at what we were doing just from what I could find available on the web and talking to my staff and asking about what we were doing at orientation, what were we doing throughout the year, what was our passive campaign for informing people about this or about that. Uh, And in doing that, I realized, okay, this is an issue that I need to pull the right people together. So I pulled the right people together. Our Title IX coordinator, I pulled together our our person who handled orientation, residence life, student activities, um, just as a start to get a kind of a handle on it. Uh, And then from there, we started expanding. My initial piece was we need to make sure that we are, you know, as Adam mentioned, checking the boxes. And I agree. I'm not a a big fan of checking the boxes. It doesn't get you very far in life. But I needed to start somewhere. And that in, in that allowed us to start looking at the other pieces that were missing. So it was really about just taking a step back, looking at what was missing and what wasn't missing, and then seeing how do we expand it, how do we add to it, what can we do within the short amount of time. I started in the summer, students are coming in. And how do we do that in a way that's not just inundating students at orientation mm-hmm. and thinking that's covering it, because it isn't. Uh, sexual assault violence prevention, alcohol prevention, wellness education is a lifetime activity. It's a year-long educational process. Um, You have to hit it from as many different points as you can. Orientation is a good start, 
mm-hmm. but it doesn't cover everything. Right. Well, and for a new student orientation, especially on a new campus, orientation can be overwhelming. So sometimes that it's so critical that reinforcement of the information, like you're saying, it's it's life learning um, through through their college career, but just is going into their adulthood and ongoing to learn about how to respond to any type of emotional or behavioral health need. Absolutely. And something I didn't mention about our institution, we have a very significant amount of our students who are first-generation students. So they are not necessarily equipped to navigate a college environment. We have to spend our time doing that, too. Uh, and, and if we don't do that well, we're not going to have them for the next year or the year after that. So that is another challenge out there. You know, And all these pieces have to come together in a way that people are going to be able to understand and remember it as well. Right. Right, and those are those pieces, like we talked a little bit earlier with Anna, that the success of their college career could mm-hmm. be dependent on um, if they don't have that support and guidance um, to really touch on all those aspects to make their, their college career successful. Um, so what, what role do students play in, in your prevention efforts? Well, you know, first and foremost, they're critical because they are the ones who are getting the education. They are the ones who um, have to buy into what's going on, but they are the ones who are also going to be the best people to affect change on the campus. One of the things that I eliminated from orientation was the person in my role or myself standing up in front of the students and talking at them about sexual violence and sexual assault. I didn't think that that was the most effective way to do that. I thought there were other ways for us to get at that. Um, And students, again, are the best people who can do that. Mm So they're critical to it. We have uh, students who serve on that committee. Um, unfortunately, it's not as many students as I would like. And while we're only 30% male, I need more males engaged in that process mm-hmm. because reaching them and figuring out how to reach them and making sure they understand all the nuances of it, making sure they understand what's expected of them, sometimes can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to get them more engaged. But students. Students are a critical piece of that. We, as administrators, as college officials, can't just dictate, this is how we're going to educate people. It's a two-way street. We implemented this past year a comprehensive bystander intervention training program with the help of crisis services. Uh, We would not have been able to do that alone. Uh, And I think that was really powerful. We were able to get 10% of our student body trained and educated. And if we continue doing that every year, our entire campus is going to have that information. The idea is to is to start small and spread it out to as many people as you can. So you do a base course, a base education for all incoming students, and then you hit your student leaders. And if you continue doing that every year, you're going to cover the entire campus. And that's kind of the model that we've been using. You know, we also took the approach this past year of educating our transfers, our incoming transfer students, and our incoming graduate students. Now, a lot of institutions aren't necessarily doing that. And the point is not necessarily that that's the population that's the most quote-unquote at risk, but they are also a population that can help affect change from others. And if they know the issues, if they know what we're talking about, they might be a person who might be able to intervene or stop something from happening. Absolutely. That's great. I mean, it's really being as comprehensive as possible with all of your students, regardless if they're new students, returning students, um, transfer students, like you said, or graduate students. It's great that everybody's getting the same message. And we talked about how important that reinforcement of a universal message is around uh, having impact um, and stopping these types of these types of issues. Um, 
So we've talked a lot about the role that our agency has played with both of your campuses through our discussion. So can you talk a little bit about the community partners that play a role in your prevention efforts? I mean, I mean, obviously, Crisis Services has been a partner with you, but who are maybe some other community partners you've been working with? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the reasons that I got involved in the, in the consortium of school colleges around Western New York is for that exact reason, to be able to share resources, share information, share people. Um, the Western New York Consortium of Colleges is probably one of the best I've ever seen in terms of being connected, public, private, large, small, community colleges. They're all there. They're all at the table, and I think that's been a tremendous resource for us just gathering together. Um, I've had the privilege of interacting with other professionals at the University of Buffalo, which is fantastic, but also other smaller colleges around the area as well. We've used that information to um, hold trainings on our campus. Uh, last August, we held a train-the-trainer uh, training on our campus <laughs> for conducting investigations. We had 75 area profession, professionals come from various area colleges and universities. Uh, and I think that was really profound. I think they got a lot out of that. So those connections have been really important. We built, we started building a really good relationship with local law enforcement as well. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we have a great situation where our um, a representative from local law enforcement actually serves on our emergency response team. Oh, on that's campus. great. And that was something that I was able to set up when I got to campus. That interacts very very closely with what we do and how we respond um, if we have an incident or a concern or, or something along those lines. So. I think that's been very important for us as well. Uh, so, you know, crisis services was one of the first places we wanted to set up a relationship, and that, and that has been profound. Uh, I can't speak enough to that, not just because we're on your radio show, but also <laughs> because the connections, the resources, the education, the experience that they have, I think has been huge. We are also a pilot program, I believe UB is as well, for having a, a campus-based advocate on yes. campus. And uh, that that has been fantastic. You know, two days a week, we have somebody who's on our campus dedicated to helping us with our education and outreach efforts. Absolutely. And, you know, um, it's just, I, w I was going to, I wanted to mention that. I think that's, it's an exciting opportunity that we have this partnership that um, of adding the advocates that are actually on campus so that they're provided yet another resource in addition to the campus resources um, from their local rape crisis program. So I think one of the pieces, to, a point to, to kind of take away for, for maybe college representatives who are listening is reach out to your rape crisis center. Yes. They are a great resource. They're part of your um, efforts to get, get the job done that needs to get done. And really the learning that has happened as a result of all these partnerships only helps the better outcome for the student. So um, and we're excited to have that partnership with both of your campuses and, and having campuses uh, advocates, based advocates, is a huge, uh, uh, exciting effort that um, we're just thrilled that we're, we're seeing happen. Um, so that's that's wonderful. Um, can you just share um, some success stories you've had with your sexual violence prevention implementation? Sure. I, I think probably one of the biggest ones is something I mentioned before with our bystander intervention training. Uh, again, this was the this was the first year we did that kind of holistic program and getting ten percent of our student body, you know, all of those student leaders there, and we're do, we're talking about not just RAs and orientation leaders, which are the usual suspects you give training to, right? But we also had all of our student athletes go through it. We had um, all of our Greek leaders go through it, our tour guides, our uh, peer mentors. I mean that. 
that was pretty impactful for us, and we were pretty very pleased with that, and we were very pleased not only with the program that was put together, but with the data that we were able to get back from it. Uh, so that I think that was something that was a huge success for us. Um, I think we also took together a campus climate survey that gave us some really good data. Despite our best efforts, and you don't want to ever break your arm patting yourself on the back, despite our best efforts and outreach and education, what we found was people still didn't know where to report something if they had a concern. And I think that's probably similar on most campuses. You don't pay attention to those things unless you need the resources. So that has helped us to take a step back and and figure out, okay, what else do we need to do? How else do we need to get this information out there? We've created a a Do Something video, part of our Do Something campaign that people can find online, Damon College Do Something, where our students and faculty and staff are are talking about doing something and trying to prevent uh, sexual assault violence, talking to people about consent. I think that's that's kind of important. That's a big success for us as well. We've had the red flag campaign on campus. We've done a variety of things around this issue, and I'm pretty proud of all that. Absolutely. So what are some um, next steps you're seeing in your prevention efforts at Damon? Well, as I mentioned before, we really need to get more male involvement on this. And and so I think that's the next piece in there. One of the things I, I struggle with, though, as well, is that there was a study that came out in 2015 from EverFi, and EverFi is a company that does a lot in terms of substance abuse education, sexual assault violence. And what they found was that the amount of sexual assault instances that happened for students before they came to campus was significantly higher than when they actually got to campus. And that's not to say it's not an issue on our college campuses. I think it is. But it's also an issue in our high schools and our elementary schools in some instance. And I think that's a challenge for us. How do we use our experience? How do we use the resources that we have to help the high schools in being able to address this issue? In some ways, by the time they come to us, it's too late. So I think that's a struggle that we have as well, and and how do we address that? Um, And I think, you know, there's also other challenges with uh, the community, with um, dealing with some serious acts that might occur and how do we work with local law enforcement Um, and I think those are things that we're still wrestling with and again being proactive but then making sure that we have the support in place to respond if and when something does happen. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think, you know, this issue um, around sexual violence prevention really needs to start um, when our children are young and understanding proper boundaries and and what consent means. And, you know, last show we talked a lot about how to talk with parents about, uh, you know, how a parent can talk to their child developmentally appropriately Mm -hmm. around sexual violence prevention. But, you know, as a a campus, you're like you said, you have students coming in with already experiencing some traumas or having maybe a diagnosed mental illness or other behavioral issues that you then have to kind of support them and surround them in that environment. So I'm just glad you mentioned that because sometimes we think very developmentally based on age and this is really a lifespan of a conversation that that needs to happen with from our children to our adolescents and as as our kids um, go into college as well. Um, I I think when before we started uh, the show uh, Greg and I we were talking a little bit about how critical it how critically important it is for campuses to to reach out to each other 
and not to be afraid to do so um, and how to share those resources. I know you mentioned the Western New York Consortium that we have here in our area, um, but really for campuses to kind of, you know, maybe put egos aside, if you will, and how to really pull their resources together in their local communities so that they can help provide and develop the best policies and response um, on campuses. So I just applaud you guys both for the work that you're doing um, here locally, and we're just excited to be able to partner with you on in various levels, not only the prevention policy level, but now that direct service piece that we'll be able to provide right on the campuses um, for your students. So, um, you know, I just want to thank you both for your your insight and your kind of review, because I think that campuses really should take advantage of learning from each other and responding to the needs of their students and, and University of Buffalo and Damon College are two excellent resources. So Google them and find them and find out about your prevention efforts and learn from that um, for other campuses throughout the country. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Um, Just a reminder that um, if you are needing to reach out to a counselor and talk with them about an issue of rape and sexual assault, to reach out to your National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Please tune in every week to The Journey, Stories of Crisis at Hope at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Please do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management